I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Jenna Crow-Riddell. And Jenna is an evolutionary biologist and sea snake researcher. Hello, Jenna. Hi. Welcome. Thanks. I've never met a sea snake researcher before. Well, now you have. (laughs) Really, they're everywhere. (laughs) So sea snakes, they're a snake, Mm -hmm. lives in the sea. That's correct. Especially adapted to life in the ocean. Yeah. It's pretty strange. Yeah. I think a lot of people think they're fish. You get That's the most common question I get if I say I work on sea snakes. They go, are they eels? Is that what you mean? And like, no, eels are fish. Sea snake is literally, it's just a snake that you'd see otherwise, but it's in the sea and it's just got some interesting features that make it really well adapted to the ocean. So there's snakes that have just like, like some of these terrestrial mammals that have gone into the water and evolved into whales and dolphins Mm -hmm. that's what these terrestrial snakes have gone into the ocean yes exactly so there was a lot of theories about their evolutionary history like um what this ancestor of sea snakes would have looked like so there were competing hypotheses at one point one was saying um maybe that the sea snakes swam over to australia got onto land and they were the ancestor of all our venomous land snakes that was a competing hypothesis for a while, but since then, in the last 10 years, my supervisor's been looking at their genetics and found, along with other things, that they are actually a really, really recent um, re-entry into the water from our venomous land snakes, if that makes sense. So there they are, they're essentially like dolphins and whales, except that whereas dolphins and whales entered the ocean 100 million years ago or something, sea snakes entered it only... Nine million years ago, so relative, you know, in a blink of an eye, in an evolutionary um, point of view, I guess. And yeah. that's interesting. And do we know why they they have done this? No, I think that's what makes them really fascinating. I suppose they're really successful. They've speciated into sixty or more different ecologically diverse species in the water. Um, but why that's not more common in other snakes? I should clarify: there are a lot of snakes that associate with water, um, and Steve, you probably know more about those than I do, talking about anacondas and things <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So there are definitely snakes that go into the water, but in terms of how, like, let's say, successful these snakes are, they're successful in that there's a lot of them and they've ha- speciated in a really short amount of time and then they show these really, really quite unique adaptations, a really combination of traits that you wouldn't see in other sort of aquatic-associating snakes. Can you tell us about some of those adaptations? Yeah, so they've got um, a compressed body, and a paddle-shaped tail. So they're compressed kind of um, call it like laterally. <laughs> so they look like a ribbon underwater. If you see them swimming, they look like a gymnast ribbon. You know, they're just p- p- really well adapted and they've got that sort of fish-type shape for moving through the water. And then the paddle kind of acts as um, both propulsion and also kind of like a rudder to sort of move them in different directions. So that's a really obvious one you might see. But they also have a um, special salt gland for filtering out seawater. They seal up sort of any sort of gap between their lips and their, their nostrils can seal so that they can exclude seawater. So they're sort of holding their breath under the water. So because they are, like you mentioned, secondarily aquatic is what we call them. So they've gone into the water. They used to be on land. They still have to breathe air. So they come up, take a breath of air, and then dive down. But not only can they hold their breath really well, they can also exchange a certain amount of 
gas between their skin so they can um, take in oxygen and also um, release nitrogen. So have you heard of um, the bends or diving sickness? Yeah, so that's when... Yeah, so if you've ever scuba dived, which I do, you have to, you know, you know that when you come back up, you have to ascend quite slowly to let all that nitrogen that's expanded when you were down um, release out of your blood. Otherwise, you'll get diving sickness and the air bubbles can pop and, you know, it's it's no good. So they deal with that problem by just letting that nitrogen release through their skin as they're diving. That's unusual because we think of reptiles a more advanced than amphibians because amphibians have porous skin and reptiles yeah. kind of don't. That's odd. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm quite fascinated by that adaptation because there's been a lot of work on it in terms of their physiology, like measuring blood volume and putting them in different quantities of water and, uh, sorry, different sort of types of water, like fresh water and then seawater and then changing the gases to see how they react. But we still don't actually know the mechanism, like what part of the skin, how do they do that? Whereas, uh, you know, a land snake wouldn't do that. So there's a lot of things they've done really quickly and done really well to adapt to the sea. Um, yeah. What do they What do they eat? Yeah. Fish, mainly. Um, this is something that's really cool about them. So you get a really sort of a spread, um, ecologically speaking. So you've got some species that are really specialised and they only eat um, one species of eel, for example. They might eat snake eels. And then you can get to the other end of the spectrum where they eat catfish really spiky spiny prey that's also poisonous and they're able to um, take them out in the water column um, and you also get things that sort of eat anything they could eat squid or they would eat crab as well as just any fish they find so there's generalist feeders um, they sort of entered the ocean and then there was nothing really filling that that role that ecosystem role that a sea snake might you know so they've managed to be really successful in finding all these little niches to exploit how long can they hold their breath underwater? So, um, from the captive studies, where they look at voluntary time, like so how long they just see sea snake takes a breath, then goes to the bottom of the tank and sits there for a while. They can sit there for up to 120 minutes, I think it is, in the literature, without needing to go up for air, um, which is pretty cool. And they can supplement the oxygen through that skin breathing. Um, I think it's 23% or something like that, 20 to 30% of their oxygen can come th- through the water, kind of like a fish, but not as good as a fish, but still pretty good. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Now, they're, they're mostly, am I right to say they're mostly around the tropical regions? Yes, absolutely. So you don't find them here in South Australia. It's just too cold. And if you do find them, then they're usually sick or being blown off course by winds. And so they do wash up in cold places, um, like New South Wales or New Zealand, but where they actually breed and thrive is tropical oceans. And where, where you find the most diversity is northern Australia onwards so like, and out through Southeast Asia, you see the most sea snakes there. They're really well adapted to sort of tropical reefs and seagrass beds, mainly sort of benthic habitats like that you find in the tropics. Yeah. So benthic, that's like the floor of the right. ocean, isn't it? A lot of waterway. Right, so they're reliant on sort of structure or some kind of ecosystem where you, they'd find their prey because they're, they're a predator, so they have to be around their prey, and those are usually associated with <coughs> seagrass beds and coral reefs are the main ones. Yeah. Do you think with global warming that will interrupt their distribution and they may start to come down further south? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's a colleague of mine, she set up a Facebook page for people to just make sightings for when they see a sea snake. So if you, it's called Australian Sea Snakes. 
on Facebook. And she's really interested in that question because although she hasn't analysed that data yet, it does seem to be a trend of we're getting more and more snakes wash up further south than we are usually used to. So you might find in the museums, historically, you'd find one or two of these snakes in Sydney. Now you're finding them every year. That, again, is just anecdotal at this point, but I think it's something we have to start thinking about. And I will say there has been some a lot of speculation for just one species of sea snake. So while I said most of them are associating with coral reefs and they, they really rely on that, there is one that's called a pelagic sea snake, and also known as the yellow-bellied sea snake. And it's found, oh, like, it thrives on sort of ocean currents um, all through the Pacific and Indian Oceans. So it's on this really... Um, I guess you could call it like an ephemeral habitat, like it's, it's constantly changing, but it allows them to tra- traverse these massive distances. Um, and they haven't made it to the Atlantic Ocean. That's because they get, you know, from Costa Rica all the way through the Pacific to Australia, through the Indian Ocean, all the way to Africa and the Cape, but they can't cross because there's a really cold Benguela current coming up from the south. So that's the only limiting factor for that snake. So there's been a lot of speculation the last few years um, about if that warms anymore, you have a sea snake that'll pop over. And because there's nothing limiting it, it's just been going through the currents, it could end, there's been speculation it could end up in the um, Caribbean uh, or the UK if well, the oceans keep warming up there. One of those yellow bellied sea snakes turned up in Tasmania recently. Yeah, yeah. So that, a couple have, in fact, and they were alive. So, and they got one got released back into the ocean. Yeah, I think there was a snake catcher. One of the Tasmanian yes. snake catchers was caring for it. It's fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I've been in contact with some people in New Zealand who are working on, because um, they're monitoring sort of, I guess, I think it's tropical reef fish that end up in New Zealand and how is that becoming more common or not. So I'm asking them if they've seen sea snakes. And I've actually found that they have seen um, the yellow belly pop up historically and it is popping up more and more in um, Auckland and also a sea crate they saw the other um, maybe last year they saw a sea crate which is we don't get in Australia so it's coming from the Pacific somewhere and it was alive as well so I want to ask you about (laughs) sea crates actually because that's a another group of snakes again what's the difference between a sea crate and a sea snake good question because they are actually extremely similar so they both have that paddle shaped tail they spend a lot of time in the water but they um, have very different, um, well, not very different, but they have different evolutionary origins. So sea snakes, um, their closest relatives are venomous land snakes, on um, Australian land snakes. So things like, you know, your tiger snakes or brown snakes in your backyard. Um, that's their closest relatives. Whereas the sea crates come from the Australia, um, so the Asian elapids or the venomous snakes there. So cobras and mambas and those sorts of snakes. So they evolve um, a little bit uh, earlier than the sea snakes. There's only eight species of them. And something really obvious about a sea crate is that they have to come onto land to lay eggs. Whereas sea snakes, they give birth to live young and they never have to come onto land. So when I say they wash up on the beach, they're like a beach whale. They're not, they're not thriving there. So they can't do anything about that. They've got these really reduced belly scales, which help them with that compressed swimming I was talking about. So they're unable to move very well on land. Whereas the sea crates, they still have belly scales pretty much indistinguishable from a land snake. You know, land snakes have those really wide belly scales for friction. They still have them and they can crawl up vertical rock faces to get to their habitats and Pacific Islands and stuff. It's really amazing. Um, I've never actually seen one, but I've heard they look quite good. I've seen one, yeah. Yeah. They're they're amazing. And we saw one at, at Mulu 
in Borneo, which is ah. a long way inland as well. Yeah. It's, uh, it was quite amazing to see it there, but it was there, yeah. And so they lay their eggs on land. I think they mate on land, so they follow sort of pheromone trails. Um, and I think they need to drink fresh water on land as well. Yeah. But sea snakes, they never come on land in a good way. Not voluntarily. Right. No. You know, once they're on land, I'm afraid they, they can barely move. So some are a bit better than others, but um, with the yellow belly, for example, I was in Costa Rica catching them. And they're, as I said, they're pelagic, so they're, they're fully oceanic. They're tr- you know, traversing these massive oceans. And you put one on, on the beach and it, it kind of, you can tell it's got the will to move. It sort of struggles for a moment and then it just gives up and sits there. And, and they get a bit psycho as well. For oh, them, yeah, they right? get very stressed out. Yeah. So you, sometimes you see videos of people picking them up, putting them back in the ocean. Um, but that mostly you should call a wildlife expert because I've known, um, as you said, in Tassie, really good cases of rehabilitation if you um, know what you're doing and you pick it up and give it fresh water and, and seawater and let it chill out. Sometimes you can release them. But, um, yeah, otherwise they're really heavily stressed or they're sick. So um, there's someone who did her PhD, Amber Gillett, on strandings, and she looked at all the sort of um, problems they have when they, when they wash up on land. So they have things like they have barnacles encrusted on their face and or they have really algae growing over them. I think they're just being, they're a sick snake and then they get all these other problems on top of that, like parasites and stuff. And so they haven't been made strong enough to stay where they should be and they get washed up. So, yeah, so a sea snake lives its whole life at sea, um, whereas a sea crate is, we call it amphibious in its habits because it comes back onto land for lots of really important things and then goes and hunts on coral reefs and stuff like that. And is that an example of convergent evolution or are they that it is? Absolutely, yeah. That paddle-shaped tail, so the bones in the tail are becoming elongate, but they're different sort of processes in the, in the sea crate than they are to the sea snake. Yeah, and they, they can still... Um, think they can still fold up their belly scales so they've got a bit of a notch in them so they can still achieve that lovely Natural ribbon shape impression. yeah mm. i like the way ribbon shape that's when i see videos of them that that's, that's what they really look well. like yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah are they um do they pose any threat to divers i, I asked because my partner's <gasps> diving at the moment in the philippines with thresher sharks you've got your fingers crossed <laughs> i don't dive at all <laughs> yeah yeah that's right <laughs> um yeah, it's ever been any cases of interactions in a negative way? Or? I think there's definitely been cases of interactions. And for me, it's just anecdotal. So not as a researcher, that's not really my what I look at. But if you go on a Facebook or, or see online, people are always ask about it or interacting with sea snakes. And before I started working on sea snakes, I was a diver. Oh, I am a diver, so I was diving before that. And I just heard all these stories like... If you see one, you know, what do you do? And really bad advice. So I won't even repeat it. Just like things about grabbing them and stuff. And it's just like, no, don't do that. (laughs) But because people are quite afraid um, because they are venomous and they've got neurotoxic venom, um, just like land snakes do. And so a bite would mean you should go to hospital. Um, And but in saying that, I haven't heard of any cases of scuba divers getting bitten by them. So where we do see bites happen are people who are working with them in fisheries or as by you know usually as bycatch if you're in australia we don't fish them here but in the gulf of thailand they do target sea snake species and there are a huge amount of bites happening there um and probably underreported like a lot of tropical um snake bites are so it's a huge health concern and they're not getting treated appropriately so there's a paper out a few years ago that said that the topical treatment for getting a bite so if you're an um 
you know, an Indonesian fisherman or a Thai fisherman, you get bitten. They're not wearing boots or anything. If they get bitten, the treatment is rhino horn. So, ah. <laughs> so just bite your fingernails. <laughs> yeah, you'll be sure. okay. <laughs> I'm not sure what the mechanism is the thought there, but that's not um, the recommendation. So you compression bandage like you would any other venomous <laughs> snake, right? And go to the hospital and so get don't, anti-venom. Don't use rhino horn. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the compl- complications. There. So that's, it is a huge problem, not in Australia, but throughout Southeast Asia, um, it's, it's a huge problem like it is with any snake bite. And you said they're a bycatch. And did you also say they're catching them on purpose? Is that for food? Yeah, so in Thailand they are for food. And you, don't, I could be wrong. You might want to Google this. But I think it's um, they do use the skin, um, but they also eat eat it. Um, and in in Japan as well, I think, in, they prepare the meat. I've not had it myself, but... <laughs> I don't know if I'm interested in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Um, Is it up there where, where they have the, the enormous amount of them? There's a certain time of year when you get, like, it's, is it half a kilometre wide by kilometres long masses of sea snakes? Yeah, so that's, I've heard historical reports of sea snakes being just chockers in the water, like chocker block. And usually it's the yellow belly. Like, so you hear these interesting accounts, like from the 1800s of a naturalist on a boat and saying that's all they could see. And so you definitely get that with the yellow-bellied sea snake. They sort of converge on currents and they just feel the water. You could walk on them, you know. And I've not seen that myself and that would be amazing. And Mm. I do wonder, I'm speculating now, I do wonder if that's like a lot of historical reports of the the abundance of animals that we just don't see anymore, if that's Mm. something we're losing. And I wouldn't, I just wouldn't say we have the data on it. We do have data on bycatch for Australia and for some parts of Southeast Asia. And um, generally it's pretty stable in Australia. It's not like it's going up or down, except for the introduction of sort of exclusion devices that they've introduced for turtles. They work really well in sea snakes as well. So that's been really good. Um, But in terms of targeting them, they do get a lot of them. I don't know if it's just because they're really abundant or they're targeting them. Uh, I don't don't know what the numbers are on that, but I have seen photos. um, That paper I talked about earlier has a photo where they're just amassed on the deck. So they're just taking thousands in. The number the number is wild. I think it's in the tens of thousands that they're accumulating of snakes in a catch. Wow. Yeah. And they can get a good size as well. They can get up to five foot plus. Yeah. Some of them. Well, I don't know what foot means, but... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Almost two metres. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, two, three metres. Yeah. They just keep growing, yeah. basically. There shouldn't be any limit on them. And um, I do wonder if that's a thing that's changing too, if the size is getting smaller you see that with fish fishing Mm. but again in australia they're not targeted so um in terms of bycatch we would like to know what makes one species more likely to be caught in bycatch than another and that's something that we're looking at but we don't know the answer to yet how do they react to you being in the water with them do you ever i know you're not meant to but do you interact with them oh um so that's really yeah so i wanted to study sea turtles so that's a confession I have um, a bit of a dirty secret. Um, something went wrong there. Yeah, something went awfully <laughs> wrong because I knew I wanted to be sort of working in the water and I loved evolutionary biology. So I, I sort of um, volunteered for an internship that was on sea turtles and you see a lot of volunteering opportunities on sea turtles in Australia. So I was like, yeah, excellent. I'm doing this. Great. Um, and then we went out on a boat and we saw sea turtles. It was great. We saw a couple species and we also happened to see sea snakes and I didn't know there was going to be sea snakes until we hopped into the water and then they were everywhere so that was my first interaction with sea snakes and I didn't even really know they existed to be honest like I know about snakes but a sea snake 
I just didn't wasn't prepared. I kind of knew they were venomous. So it made it even more terrifying when one just came straight up, swimming straight up to me, sticking out its tongue. They're really curious. Mm. Just And they'll just um, tongue flick all the way from my fins up to my head and then keep going. So I had a lot of interactions like that. So I, I was, we were there to survey sea turtles and sea snakes. So there were some sea snake researchers on board. And like literally one of the only few that exists in the world. There was two of, three of them. Um, so that really ignited my interest in sea snakes. So we'd get off the boat and I'd be like, what's going on with these animals? And so I could talk about them and um, really discover how cool they are. But um, one of the things that leapt out at me is like, yeah, three species of sea turtle, but we're catching like 10, 15 species of sea snake in the same area. So it was a bit more diversity, a bit more, um, more interest for me, I guess, not to slag off sea turtles because <laughs> they are amazing as well um bit boring aren't they um but yeah so i'd be in the water with them and i'd spot a sea snake great tick it off you know on the survey and let's watch them for a bit they're beautiful moving um ungul- undulating in the water just so graceful and poking their heads in burrows and then they come up for a breath what a privilege and you see it, it's only a couple meters away and the snake would come up and sure enough open its mouth take a deep breath and the very next thing it would do would turn and look at me and come straight over. So that's the olive sea snake. And it's an extremely curious snake. It's a really common sea snake in Australian waters. And um, yeah, it was terrifying, but never did it one bite me. I'm not saying they wouldn't, but it didn't. And I think that I would describe their behavior as quite curious. And um, so I think it's really easy to then interact with them. So if you sort of move your fins around, I've seen it a lot in a few videos where people sort of don't want the sea snake near them, so they'll, they'll swim away, but the movement of the fins will be quite intriguing to the sea snake and they'll keep following and, mm. and pursuing. So uh, my advice is just to stay still and try not to disturb it and it will do, it will come and check you so out. So unlike a land snake that's more than likely to just go that's and right, get out yeah. of the way. Yeah, I wonder, uh, like, you obviously know what their, what their senses are like on the water, because on land I know mm. forked tongue and yeah. it... it taste the air that's got to change a lot underwater yeah so that that kind of captured me that question because we don't actually know that much about what they sense underwater next (laughs) (laughs) so then i was like oh maybe i'll do some research on that and i asked someone on the boat i was on i was like oh would you maybe be my supervisor and that uh she said yeah great let's do it and so i moved to adelaide to do this research with this particular supervisor dr kate sanders and that was in 2014, and then now I'm, I've just finished my PhD on them. So I kind of kept getting captivated by that question, asking more and more questions, because um, there, there, there has been a lot of research on certain aspects, but, but that aspect of their life, not, we just don't know that much. And there's a lot of, like, we could ponder what they might do, because we'd see their tongue flicking, and they open their nostrils when they come up to breathe. And their tongues aren't as long as a terrestrial... That's Is such that a good right? question. It's something we want to test, actually, mm. because I don't think it's been measured. But just if eyeballing it, I would say you're probably right. They're, they're, we, they're almost, I don't, they're almost to me, like mm. as, a, as a novice, not really knowing much, their tongue almost becomes useless underwater. Well, that's the theory, because, well, why do you think it's useless? I'll ask you that. Yeah. Yeah, why, what makes <laughs> oh, just because it, I don't know, because it's taste in the air, and, and I don't know, you but wouldn't... Um, it, Mer- sorry to interrupt, Merton's water monitors can collect scent underwater with their tongues. 
Cool. There's a lot of parallels because they've got the electrical crisp tile. Yeah, got the but you wonder how, how far yeah, they can sense. Yeah. Like, if I'm that far away from you, yep. like, how much a land snake would be able to sense quite a lot, mm-hmm. but how much would a sea snake because of that body of water between? Yeah. I don't know. It's I don't strange, know whether it makes it? any difference or not. I just it just confuses no. me. No, th- like this is my exact thought process. Mm. This is exactly what, and this has been a recent question. So. I looked, I've been looking at um, their sense of touch and another really weird sense of um, skin, skin light sensitivity. But now I'm getting more and more interested in all the other senses they have. So um, I was quite interested in how they find each other underwater and how they mate. Because as you said, on land, a lot of land snakes can sense each other from kilometres just by the trails that like a, a female might leave a pheromone mm. and, a, and a male can pick that up. And so really famous studies have been on garter snakes in Canada where they um, hibernate for the winter and then when they wake up they're just in a mating frenzy and they have to find females really quickly and they form these massive mating balls and they're really really cool snakes and quite a weird thing I'd love to go and see I know yeah so they're quite unique Mm -hmm. in that way but those that's those studies um, are incredible they found things where the male can pick up on a female scent from kilometers away and track her and find her they found that other males can mimic the sense of the, the pheromones of a female. So those males go and find this other male. And the reasoning behind that, I think... Guy. <laughs> which was awesome. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It, the, yes. Oh, I've got a story about mating sea snakes that were both male. But anyway. Um, I've got lots of pythons. I think it's fascinating. Same thing. Yeah. So and that starts bringing up questions like, well, what, how do you recognise a mate and who do you choose to mate with are really fundamental questions in biology. Um, and for me, I like studying the senses because that's your interface with all of those behaviours and, and your perception of the world is always through your senses. So it's the same for animals. How, how is their perception of their surrounding world being formed by their very particular senses that they've evolved in that environment? So, so snakes are very reliant on chemical chemical cues in their environment but are sea snakes and they do have they do tongue flick i think they look we've just been looking at videos of them and they seem to just pop their the forked part of their tongue out and not the full tongue whereas if you look at land snakes especially like rattlesnakes or something they pop their the whole tongue comes out up and down oh, up and, it and really down. tastes and, and you yeah, can see it really, and, um, really quickly mm. it's phenomenal but sea snakes don't do that they kind of protrude a few the a fork here and there yeah, it's almost whenever you see it, you only see literally the two little yeah. ends of the forks come out Yeah, and not much else. Yeah, yeah so true. what are they picking up? And there hadn't been many good, any real studies on that, except um, last, late last year I was really excited to find a study um, that a Japanese group had done on some sea snakes up there. And they actually did some, they, they collected them and did these trials where they manipulated what, what the sea snakes could see and taste. Um, and basically found that, yeah, they're attuning to the, the, the very particular smells of their prey. So the sea snake that's very specialised, only eats an eel, will only go for that kind of smell, whereas the one that's more generalist and will eat lots of things would attune to many different smells and wouldn't be quite as specific like that. So they definitely are smelling with their tongue underwater. But that I'm intrigued by that question you mentioned about the whole body of water between them. Mm. So what happens to a chemical when it is in the air is very different to what happens in the water. So mm. there's more... 
you know, it gets dispersed. It's like putting salt in water or a drop of food dye in water, right? It disperses out in a very particular way. In the air, they disperse too. Mm. But you'd think the chemicals on the ground would be more useful. It's, it's yeah. Like if a rattlesnake kills a mouse and a mouse runs or bites a mouse, mm. mouse runs away, and then the rattlesnake tracks or, or yeah. a snake will track that mouse. Whereas, yeah, that's what in the ocean. confuses me in the ocean. Yeah. So our gone. theory is, is maybe... Yeah. Maybe into, let's bring it back. Yeah, so we can we can understand how they're finding prey, but I think it is a close range thing. So they're limited in that way that they can only really do it when they're close enough to the prey to see it. So they might be using other signals. And then that study I mentioned, they also changed the arrangement of like objects. So they made something that looked like a burrow and made something that looked more like a rocky thing where you might find different prey. So the eel might go down the burrow, whereas a fish might be under a rock. So they changed that up as well and found that the snakes are looking visually for they're using their sight first to make decisions and then once they're there they're using their tongue it was a really cool study because there's nothing being you know where they've actually manipulated what the snakes can, can are exposed to and stuff like that so it's more being natural history observations which are really so it sounds important. like they've probably got more vision yeah land yeah so yeah. that so we start thinking about these questions of like okay maybe they still have it but it's altered in some way because of mm. that environment they're in and that's that's the question that I, that's just driving me. That's, that's and I, I'd assume they don't have heat pits of any. No, they don't. Sort. But they do have. And this has been my research. They've got these little bumps that look like pimples all over their um, snout. Um, the hundreds of them. Land snakes have them too, but they seem to vary. And so do lizards. So. And sharks. Yes, they look exactly like what sharks have. Mm. The dendricles, I think they're called. They've got know. these little. So in sharks, they break up their boundary layer so that they can swim better so that's a theory for these little bumps but what i actually tested was whether they varied in size and shape and because no one had even looked at the how they looked really because everyone was like yes sea snakes seem to have bigger ones than land snakes but no one had actually really tested that so i did this some weird things just to museum specimens essentially like so we've collected at the south australian museum and um looked under the microscope and quantified what they actually look like and found that Actually, yeah, they look pretty similar to what land snakes have. And in land snakes, there's been some good studies to show that, okay, these are touch receptors. So when a, a snake comes in contact with a rock or a prey item or whatever, they can, they can touch it just like we can. But because they've got those hard scales, they've got to sort of funnel all their receptors and all their nerves into these little pimples. And just at the edge of the pimples are the skin gets thinner and they can sense better through those. So all of those little pimples, we call them sensilla, but they've got lots of different names. Um, so all of those sensilla tend to be concentrated towards the snout where they're probing things or bumping their heads. If you've ever kept capture snakes, you know they, they kind of check out things by bumping their heads on stuff. So, so that was a surprise to me. I was like, what? So land snakes are quite tactile, and so are lots of reptiles, but it's just not something I'd really considered in the past. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, I remember, um, sorry to butt in, but no, no, we, no. we had a three-metre olive python in our front yard and a tiny little ant climbed over the back half of it and, and the snake wiggled. And it, and it yeah. seems obvious, but I just thought, yeah, you know, yeah. people often ask me when they're patting a snake, like, can it feel it? And yeah. it's like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's surprising how sensitive. And, then, and I was like, how sensitive are they? Because so, so we, what I found was that they had, sea snakes have very similar looking ones, except a few key species had massive sensilla, like, orders of magnitude like four times five times bigger and um i was like why is that well mate our theory is that they're using touch for long distance sensing now so whereas on land or in the air we need to physically contact something to to really feel it for touch 
they could sense it through the water. So, you know, if you go in the water or you chuck a rock in the water, ripples, ripples form. Yeah, yeah so like, the same like thing happens underwater. Crocodiles, their faces are more yes. sensitive than our fingertips and they've got all those nerve endings. And it's yep. interesting because those sense of touch and eyesight, eyes, they mm. all evolved in the water. Yeah, like initially, yeah. Secondary. Yep. And now it's going back against so strange. So bringing up convergent sensors, that's a kind of hypothesis at the moment, is that fish can sense the movement of of water really well so they can um, react instantly just like a crocodile can and um, uh, I think octopus can as well so this is a really really common sense underwater um, so it would kind of make sense that a sea snake going in would benefit from that um, same sense of being able to feel the ripple of a prey or predator coming up behind them or a rough sea so that's our current hypothesis with that which I really excited about <laughs> that makes sense mm. and is that that's your main area is the senses of um sea snakes in general or any particular species of sea snake yes in general that that major question of you've you've gone from the air like an air land-based environment to such a drastically different environment what has that done to sea snakes as a whole and um does that mean all of them have very um unique senses compared to land snakes or has some very specific things popped up in just a few sea snakes um that that you wouldn't find in a land snake so how do unique things kind of pop up so i like to take that big view of um sort of an evolutionary perspective and we can do all these great things now you can with dna data you can and and fossil fossil calibrations it's quite a lot of heavy maths but you can actually date um sort of times when sea snakes entered the water and that's how we get those dates about nine million years ago we fossil dating and then you can actually reconstruct okay how did that trait or that sense of smell or whatever it is change and did it change at that transition to see does that make sense i'm kind of rambling now no that that's, that's, makes that's, sense. Sense. Yeah. that's my thing <laughs> you're explaining stuff that goes right over my head but you're explaining it in a really way, okay good great way that I can it goes over my head too. it's not it's not easy stuff I'm so but, glad uh, there are academics out there <laughs> and, and ones that could explain stuff in a, such a passionate and yeah. informative way. So thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, are any of these species like really threatened? Are we concerned about any of the sea snakes? Or um, are they doing yeah. well or not? Or? Yeah, there's a couple iconic ones in the last few, well, I guess, last few decades. So going back to that boat I was on, so that was a field research trip to Ashmore Reef. So that's between – so you leave from Broome and if you get on a boat for um, – God, what was it 24 hours you steam out you get to these offshore reefs um and they're actually probably closer to timor than they are australia but they're considered some of them are considered australian territory um and you, you'd see a customs vessel out there and you'd see a navy boat and that was kind of it so we went out there to find these sea snakes and that's a very special place for sea snakes because historically they were known as like a hot spot so there was 12 to 15 species a couple were only found there so there was two species only found there one was a short-nosed sea snake and the other one was that, um, I keep thinking of it in the Latin names and the scientific names, but the other one's a leaf-scaled sea snake. So they were only found on these offshore reefs, like one or two reefs, and they were so far from anywhere else, we're like this very special population and it's just a you know, beautiful habitat. But when I went out in 2012, one of those reefs didn't have any sea snakes anymore and that had been happening over a couple of decades and we knew about that, but they'd been essentially been monitored to extinction. There was nothing had we didn't know why they were going extinct, and we still don't. That's quite alarming. And so for me, as like a young biologist then, I guess, before my PhD or anything else, I was just astounded at this loss because you go a couple of reefs over and you'd still see sea snakes. 
but suddenly it would disappear. And this is a pristine reef that, as I said, there's no, there's no fishing going on. It's protected. It's been protected since the 80s. And suddenly the sea snakes are gone. And that's really alarming to me. And what was even more tragic was those two um, endangered species that were endemic to that area obviously had gone with them. But a bit of hope, I guess, to that was that a colleague of mine, um, Blanche D. Anastasi, she, and also based on Dr. Kate Sanders' research, discovered that there were actually populations of these two species on the Western Australian coast, but we just hadn't been looking for them. So a couple had washed up and, and they thought, oh, they're just waifs, they've just washed up from the big reefs. But no, we just actually didn't know about the diversity in Western Australia well enough to even know it was there. But it turns out these populations have been thriving and they're actually quite genetically distinct from those offshore ones. So they are their own thing. They've been around for a long, long time and we just didn't even know about them. So that, the, ho- the great thing was, is okay, we didn't lose those species. Um, the thing that I always think about is like, well, how do, we pre- how do we prevent further loss? What are the driving, you know, obviously fishing's a big impact, but in Australia, that's not, not as big a concern. So what's going on? Um, and that's what started me really to, to want to research them was a drive to conserve them. And then I got kind of down this rabbit hole of interesting, interesting questions. Yeah. There's ones that you said that had disappeared from that island. Mm. What were they feeders of? Were they fish eaters too? Yeah, so oh, you're testing my knowledge now. Yeah, I think they were, they were considered sort of shallow reef specialists. So, um, you know, if you're on a the sort of intertidal, not intertidal, but like, yeah, just a shallow reef, so not necessarily like a deep coral reef, but you could see them on reef flats. And so we went for reef walks trying to look for them. That's where they were found historically. But um, the ones on the western Australian coast are in seagrass beds. So very different habitats. So we actually don't know what they're eating, I don't think. Um, unless we go back into some museum records, we might find. But yeah, fish, but I don't know off the top of my head what, what fish. But it's potentially quite specialised again, I don't know. So we still don't know why those others have disappeared. No, no. We, we hear a lot about coral bleaching. Yeah. That would have to be um, have yeah. impact on these guys. So there was a paper out that looked at sort of different factors and there were definitely some big coral bleaching events that happened around a um, couple, couple, I think, one in the early, early 2000s and one in the late 1990s. Um, but the area in question wasn't as affected by those coral bleaching events. So it's still it's not a nice direct correlation. So it's still quite uncertain. We can't say, oh, yes, it was that. Some people think that it was an increase in predators in the area, like for whatever reason. So sea snakes are eaten by sharks and sea eagles and stuff. Um, so maybe there was more predators around. What's weird is that they, are, they were really ecologically diverse species and they were in very different habitats. So, yeah, you had those, those shallow reef ones, but then you also had the generalist ones. You had the yellow-bellied sea snake there. You, you just, they're all doing different things in different areas in the ecosystem for all of them to be wiped out in a relatively short amount of time without any um, obvious sickness or disease and, or any other coral health marker, as far as we can see, is quite disturbing. So one thing that, we, that my supervisor thought it could be was maybe it's seismic surveys in the area, so oil and gas exploration, let out this big high-impact sound um, bubbles, which do impact a lot of... Um, they impact whales and turtles and squid and a lot of fish do they impact sea snakes? So that's what got me onto the sense thing. I was like, well, what can they even sense in the first place? So that's That would kind be of... a massive sensory overload, wouldn't it? A seismic explosion. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, there's a lot of effects of them. It depends on how close the animals are to the impact site. So if you're 
So whales can sort of hear it a long way off. As far as I understand, they can hear it a long way off. And what they tend to do is avoid the area. So they'll, their migration routes will be disrupted. Um, but other things, sea snakes don't really move like whales do. <laughs> a lot smaller. So they, they've got less capacity to do that. And then there's even been reports of if you're really quite close to that impact, um, swim, if you've got a swim bladder, if you're a fish, um, the air will explode. <laughs> so sea snakes obviously have a lung with air in it. Whether it affects them, we don't know. So we think we're wondering if, if it has an impact on them or not. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Do you have a favourite sea snake? Ah, oh, such a good question. What do you mean, like? <laughs> like a species? A species or an actual sea snake? Oh, Gary. Yeah, Gary. Absolutely, Gary. 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 Oh gosh. Um, they're all so good. <laughs> I hate to be one of those people, yeah. but are you just going to like them? They're not listening. <laughs> okay, okay, let me. Um, the yellow belly sea snake's pretty good, but it's, I don't want to go with that one because that's the one everyone knows. Um, I've got so many soft spots. The turtle headed sea snake has to be that one. So that's a really, really, really weird one. Um, it's called the turtle headed sea snake, and they have these really cute heads. They've got, so they've, the um, snout, yeah, you got to Google it. The snouts become sort of blunted, um, and it looks like a turtle. Big eyes, um, like a turtle, and a kind of little beak going on. Um, they have evolved to eat just fish eggs, so they don't really need venom. And and accordingly, their fangs have become really reduced, and sort of, and their venom's degenerated. They've got tiny venom glands. You can barely see their fangs. They've got hardly any teeth left. Much like a turtle, they've just got sort of gum. And that's because they gnaw off um, sort of deposits of fish, fish eggs, um, fish, nest, uh, fish egg nests when they're foraging. And they've been described as more, more closely, their foraging methods more closely thought, thought of as like what a, a land herbivore, like a cow essentially does. Just goes along and grazes on the reef and it hardly moves. Um, it's, it's just a funniest looking stick. Yeah, they do. They've got a turtle head, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, you need um, to look it up. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And the thing that recently has captured my attention is they have, um, the males have these little rostral appendages. So the very tip of their snout has this sort of grown to a point and it's called a rostral spine. But they're not really spines. So I, I first thought maybe they look like um, a, a python or a boa spur, which they have on their sort of derived from vestigial hind limbs. Yeah. Um, and they use that for mating, if I'm correct. Uh, yes, it, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, pythons and bones yeah. do, yeah. So these guys use this little spine on the top of their um, head for mating as well. So the males will court a female. And again, they, they seem to be using visual cues. So if you put a rope in the water, they'll court that in the mating season. They'll court anything. And then when they're close enough, they'll poke the female just behind her head and her neck region. Sea snakes do have necks. So they'll poke her there. And um, if he's good enough... He will, he will mate. But what's really interesting is they have this really protracted mating courtship that goes on forever. And um, the males, I've, I've, we discovered recently, if we weren't looking at museum specimens, not only do they have that spine, they have these really massive scintilla on their chins only. Um, and if you've ever seen land snakes court, they do this chin rubbing, which you, maybe if you've bred, if you guys have bred snakes. It. I've seen some of the freshwater turtles come up and they yeah. rub together. And yep. Yeah. And they're really elaborate displays. And if you actually, it, I, I didn't know this, and so I because I only know about sea snakes, right? So then I start reading about other reptiles, and it turns out tactile 
courtship or foreplay, as it's known, um, is really common in in turtles and snakes, and they're actually really touchy feely. Um, so we found this big, these big um, append, like these big sensilla on their chin um, that look essentially like they're five times bigger than a normal tactile organ. Um, and if you look at videos of the mating, the male will, you know, if he, if the female stops long enough, he'll sort of rub his chin. So he's getting this feedback that seems to be really important for, for like, oh, this is not a rope. This is a female, right? Like, <laughs> I'm into this. And what, well, is she into it? So we've got all these questions about what, what um, kind of criteria maybe the female's choosing what, who's a good male based on how well he prods her. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> It's the same in many animal world, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's good to hear because, I mean, so many, so many animals are just really rapey. So that's nice yes. to hear. Wow. Yeah. Like a lot of the mammals, you know. It's a good yeah. – well, this is what I'm thinking. So I've been looking at the literature on land snakes and, and by the literature, you know, it's mainly sort of people have kept snakes and they've just done these wonderful observations of how they're actually mating because otherwise we don't have much information on it. So I've been reading these, uh, you know, these quite – graphic accounts of snake courtship from many from the 70s and 80s for some reason and it turns out yeah, a lot of land snakes are very touchy-feely as well and they do these really elaborate um sort of chin rubbing and they kind of vibrate their head up and down the female's body and um i think it's important because it's it means there's female choice going on so she can decide whether she's going to mate or not and this is my theory anyway <laughs> so we think that's really important because you can't sort of force it um, so much because there's a scale covering the cloaca, which is the the like, it's the one side, the one whole fits all great thing that reptiles have. Yep. Um, <laughs> it's covered by a scale called the anal scale. So she, there's a thing called cloacal gaping. So she lifts that scale and presents the hole, and then the male can mate. But otherwise, if she doesn't do that. The snake's got no hands, got nothing to work with. What's he going to do? Yeah. And in land, uh, land snakes, they, there's lots of lying on top of each other, and you see that in combat as well. Males will, you know, to win a contest, the, the dominant male will, will force the other one down with its chin, and there's a lot of uh, feedback, um, touch, touching going on. So I think it's a similar thing, but again, in the water, well, a male can't lie on top of the female like that, or, you know, there's. Um, Things change. And again, I, this is all just my theories going on. We want to test these, you know. How's a, how's a male finding a female? It's a female choosing who's the most attractive male. We don't know. And how do the males combat in water? If they combat at all. And mm. uh, uh, someone in my lab, um, James Nankervilles, he, he thinks there's combat going on because not only do they have these sensilla, some species have spines all down their belly which obviously a land snake couldn't really have because they, they need their belly for moving around. But sea snakes doesn't have that anymore. So they've got these massive spines and sometimes only the males will have them and sometimes only in the breeding season. So what, are they using that for grip or are they, are they fighting? We don't have any, um, we don't really have much natural history, you know, um, really, footage of them. <laughs> it's a really interesting subject that you're you're in because you've got so Thank much you. to learn about. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, it's thrilling. It's massive. Yeah. Mm. Wow. It's good to have. Um, I, the thing I love about research is it's actually quite creative in so many ways because you have to think quite laterally or pull together evidence from what have, what have they done in mammals? Well, what do what do mammals do, or what does a land snake do, and and then kind of extrapolate or, or build a hypothesis from there, build my question out of what we know about other things, and then that's the best part of research i think you know you work with these cool animals but also you're sort of pushing the envelope but 
it also is really hard because <laughs> you because you are often wrong, so you have to deal with that mental, um, emotional challenge of being wrong when you when when you don't see the things or, or something doesn't work out in the lab. Things are really finicky and that can be quite hard. It's probably the worst thing about every science. Yeah. Around is yeah you're wrong a lot to get the correct answer. Yeah, and that's that's good as well, isn't it? Mm. You want to be kind of challenged and humble you know you don't know everything and if you do think you know everything then you're in the wrong subject of science i think well yeah so i guess being proven wrong is a success in a way because you've yeah. well, we've learned that that's wrong so we have learned something from it it's that's still useful exactly it? yeah that's the, the, the you know you're still contributing mm. yeah um are these animals are they pursuit predators or ambush predators or there's a bit of everything going on or? um mainly they're um not too much ambushing going on, which is interesting because other, if you look at other aquatic snakes, so freshwater snakes like file snakes you get up in um, northern Australia, they sort of just sit in this, apparently. Again, I haven't seen it. So I read about all these things, but we're talking <laughs> earlier. Steve's kept, oh, or knows about them as well, right? Mm. You kept them? Oh, so I haven't yeah. kept them. No. Okay. No. But yeah, they just sort of sit in the water and wait for a fish to come along. And they're really um, touchy-feely as well. They've got a really tactile sense. And as soon as a, a fish sort of touches them, they can wrap around them. Um, but sea snakes, they do that. They're actively looking for prey all the time. And if you see one in the water, you'll find that they're poking their heads sort of under every single crevice that they can find or down into um, burrows. And there's a, I just have to mention, because there's a lot of these really weird sea snakes, again, that have these um, tiny heads compared to the rest of their body. And not just their heads, but their forebody becomes really, really slim. Um, and then sort of midway down the body or three quarters of a length long, you get a normal snake again, so you're disproportionate. So it's like a shrunken head kind of syndrome in these snakes. And they use that for fitting their... So, for ex, I guess it's a podcast, so you've got a big tail that might be the size of my hand, and then as you go along the length of my arm, you'll get to um, something that's about the size of a finger now. That's the kind of proportions we're talking about, like really comically it's tiny It's so heads. weird, isn't it? It's, it reminds me of like all these different shorebirds, how they have these different shaped beaks for sticking their beaks into yeah. the ground to find different foods. That's it. These guys have evolved their heads, necks, bodies. Yeah. And actually, if you catch one of these, it's not a joke because it's, they're quite venomous still, even with a small fang. But often I've gone for, you know, you've got to restrain the head to make sure that, you know, they, they don't bite. And I go for the tail. And their head's loose because you, you confuse it like that. It's, they're just so small. You're used to the head being really big and bulky, but the, the tail is still big, a big paddle tail for swimming, right? But then this tiny little head and... Um, and you pin it by the tail. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, they're, they're fascinating, fascinating, because um, my supervisor is really really interested in those ones because they seem to have evolved not just once but multiple times in the sea snakes it's convergent in all in so many of those species they all seem to have converged so what i mean by that is they've got a sister species or a closely related species that looks perfectly proportional and normal their closest relative will, will have a normal looking body but then they have some you know they've just um found a prey that's burrowing even deeper like an eel and then they've got to get to it so that's happened multiple times and when that happens and it's only in one group that seems to be explosively speciating, like just speciating at a rate. Not many people know this, but evolution actually happens. It can happen at different rates. So you can, something can be evolving really quickly, which means a lot of species have come, come up really in a relatively short amount of time, and others are kind of plodding along, like sea turtles. There's no new sea turtle species coming anytime you know, soon, whereas with sea snakes, it's just happening all the time. So this one group has all these small-headed um, species, 
and so what's going on there um is that so that they can get into smaller holes yeah i think so and those ones are only eating snake eels so um they're able to not just get down the hole but bite the eel envenomate it and then extract it out so what other predator in the ocean can get an eel out of its burrow? It doesn't need a big head, big body to swallow that. No, because it's a, it it's a snake, it's, right? Yeah. yeah. So it can just um, yeah, do the whole um, swallow it whole thing. Mm. So these eels are probably evolving at the same rate, deeper and deeper. It's a, and it's a good question. It hasn't been tested. Kind of like, okay. yeah. kind of like the taipan, how they eat that. Is it the long-haired rat or something? And yeah. The, the long-haired rat's getting hairier and hairier and the, the taipan's fangs are getting longer and longer. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think the head is an underlooked element and it's something... I think people see a, a snake and they go, what's a tube? What, what's, what's happening there? But a lot of the evolution's happening in its head because that's what's interacting with the prey. That's how they find prey. That's how they eat prey. So um, eat prey, love. And that's how they <laughs> sorry that's how they find them and eat them and um you see rapid evolution happening in the skull shape so there's a lot of diversity and um you find even more diversity in the sea snakes than you do in any of the other land snakes so it's, it's just weird stuff's going on in the sea snakes because of, it's like an evolutionary experiment where you've just popped this land thing in the ocean to see what it does and it's doing all this really weird stuff so for evolutionary biologists like myself it's just this gold mine treasure trove of questions to be answered or mainly asked. <laughs> do you do like stomach contents analysis on them? Yeah. You, you put an emetic in there and they just regurge? Is that how it's done? Um, yeah, but um, sometimes they regurge. If, if you catch them, they might be a bit, little bit stressed, so they will regurge and we collect that. And so we work pretty closely with um, itziologists, like the fish department in the museum. And there's been actually really good work on sea snake stomach contents um, throughout the years. So we have a pretty good idea of what they're eating. And pretty early on, some researchers were, were asking questions about the small-headed thing. So we have some really nice data where they looked at the shape of the prey, so the shape of the fish. Does that influence the shape of the head of the sea snake? And um, there were some broad patterns happening. So not what, the ta- what type of species didn't matter so much but if that fish looks a lot like another fish so like say there's a snake that eats it eats catfish and it also eats puffer fish and they're relatively you know they spiny they get really big and puffy so they've got similar adaptions so they can open them um they've got more skin underneath their chin and they can really expand their head to get around that um so yeah so that's the this kind of what do you call it evolutionary arms race yeah what are the prey adapting or not to those we don't know uh, yeah. uh, what's the biggest sea snake um, out of all the sea snakes? Um, I think the biggest that gets bandied around is um, Stokes sea snake. It's definitely the chunkiest um, and it gets quite long and it's got the biggest fangs of all the sea snakes. But then other ones can get a lot longer. So I think like, I don't know, some really like, there's one called Elegant sea snake. It's really, really long. And the, um, there's one called Hydrophis king eye. I don't know. I think it's called the spectacled sea snake. Also gets like, four, you know, three or four meters long. So they may even evolve to be bigger, eat bigger prey. We're going to have giant, massive anaconda-sized things cruising around. I think there was <laughs> one historically, like in the ancient past. Really? There was a. Uh, now this is my a knowledge. Lot of myth, myth, uh, mythology on snakes. Yeah, <laughs> but there actually was one. Yeah, there yeah. was one. It was um, hanging around Florida. I don't know. So this is my weak spot as a scientist. You know, I'm really bad with fossil um, paleontology. But there, there's definitely where there was a. 
there was a sea snake that was massive, like a megafauna sea snake wow. with a paddle-shaped tail and everything. Whoa. Yeah. I'll look it up after this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's extraordinary. Yeah. We want you to rediscover that one, please. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't want any megalodon no. uh, repeat. <laughs> yeah. That's very, very interesting. Um, so how long have you been studying sea snakes? Um, so probably five five years now yeah probably so I just finished just handed up my PhD thesis so that was four years and then I did my honours on them as well so yeah five years um, yeah. you were talking about light receptors yes so this is what I really should be talking about so, um, <laughs> oh we haven't got time because uh, actually most of my PhD work was on this well actually hit record Steve we'll get into yeah, it <laughs> <laughs> no. alright so um, yeah I Speaking about sea snakes being really weird, in the 1990s, um, some researchers discovered that the olive sea snake um, can actually sense light out of its tail. So independently of its eyes, it can sense light. And they found this out by diving on the Great Barrier Reef at night um, and found that all these olive sea snakes would be sort of coiled up under sort of rocky overhangs or on the reef, um, all completely nicely tucked away, except their tails would still be exposed coming so they would just see tails of sea snakes everywhere so they shine their light on the tail and then they would tuck it under the rock that's we're going crazy right so they repeated that hundreds of times and every time they put their torchlight on it it would move its tail so then they collected um, a couple juvenile olive sea snakes and sort of formalized where in the tail was sensitive so if they shined it on the body it didn't really move didn't do anything if you shined it sort of on the lower half of the tail, didn't do anything. It was just the very, very most tip of the tail is sensitive to light, um, which is um, quite unique. It's a really rare sense. That's not something that you tend to find in land, uh, vertebrates, so mammals or birds or anything like that. Um, you see it more in invertebrates like marine plankton and stuff that don't have well-formed eyes. But sea snakes have well-formed eyes and they do see. So... That was really bizarre, and it got published in a small note, and then no one really picked it up from there. And then until I read it, <laughs> and I was like, oh, why hasn't anyone done this? I was talking to my, my um, supervisor. I was like, oh, this seems easy enough to test. Like, we're going on a field trip to Broome. And Bring a torch. Yeah, surely. <laughs> isn't that? Come on. So that was the beginning. That was in honours I decided to do, just to do a, you know, let's have a look. And sure enough, it did exactly as the paper described. You know, you, you shine a light on its tail and it will move its tail away from the light. And the theory was that it's trying to keep itself hidden during the day. So if you look at these snakes during the day, they won't keep, their tail won't be exposed. They'll be very well hidden if they want to be, so if they're resting. So maybe they're you know, making sure, okay, I know where my head is, it's, it's under the shade, but what's, what's the rest of my body doing? What's this tail doing? So it's a little extra sense for it to um, hide. So what we did or what we discovered was that not it's not just the olive sea snake it's um it's actually just a couple just a few sea snakes that can do it so when that first paper came out it was just one species um and everyone you sort of hear people say yeah sea snakes can do that but like which sea snakes all of them well um why like how these are my questions and um so we tested eight species and found that only two two others had it and they were quite closely related to the olive sea snake and if you um, reconstruct uh, you know what, what else it's related to we probably think it's only 10% of all sea snakes so only, only six sea snakes probably have this sense out of the 60 or so um, because the other ones didn't have it um, that we tested uh, so that came as a shock 
<laughs> well, like, why? Um, and uh, we still don't know the answer to that. Um, but uh, we also looked at some, some genetics going on in the skin and found a few interesting proteins that are light-sensitive proteins that mammals have, that we have in our eyes, but they're not to do with image-forming vision. So um, they're just to sense overall light conditions. For us, that means we know when it's night and day, when to sleep, so something called circadian clock, circadian rhythms. So it's a protein that's related to that protein, and it's in the skin, and potentially that's driving it. We don't, we don't really know how, when that evolved. Um, yeah. When you, you, you said that to me in a text, and I had a mate who, who was a snake catcher, and he, I told mm. him, and he, he thought, is it so the snake knows he's completely concealed? That's correct, yeah. I think you did That's our theory, that, yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. So I, think, um, I think people know about it, and people have te- tried testing it in land snakes, but I don't think they've found anything because they don't publish it. So it's just not been well studied. But the one, pub- one paper that did find something, they tested these... Um, Saharan sand vipers, they, they burrow themselves completely in the sand. So they wondered, maybe it knows when it's concealed if it has a little receptor in its tail. But actually it was using touch. So they, they manipulated the size of the grains by using marbles. And the bigger the, the grain size, suddenly they didn't know they were completely covered anymore and they just kept burrowing forever. Because <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't feel anything around them. So they're using touch. Whereas maybe sea snakes can't really do that for some reason. Maybe you know, it's, it's less of a burrow. It's, you know, you're sort of floating around. Um, that's very strange. What I will say, we also discovered in the literature, is that the other vertebrates that have this sense look like sea snakes. They're, they're aquatic animals. They have big elongate bodies with a, um, and they're paddle-shaped tails. So things that do it are fish like hagfish and lampreys and aquatic salamanders, so axolotls, things like that. Not, I don't know if that's the species, but... Um, Something called a hellbender does it. Oh, yeah. So they're in very different habitats, but they look, you know, they've got a similar body plan. So we're wondering if it's a convergent thing for these um, animals that have long bodies and they've got to keep track of what the other end of their tail is doing um, and, yeah, stay concealed so during the day. With the, with the land animals, they've got that touch. Yeah. With water, it's water, so... That's not going to make yeah, so, so sea snakes don't go down burrows. They, yeah, they will just be sitting under mm. like a, a rocky overhang or a little cave or something. So maybe it's, I mean, we just, we don't know. I did test some, I looked at, you do see sea snakes with um, bite marks in their tail. They do get damaged quite a lot. So their tails are paddle shaped, like I said, they're quite big and conspicuous and it's on the end of them. So it's quite vulnerable to being bitten. So you can measure that. And we did find that... Um, the sea snakes that have um, this light sensor do get bitten, but so do a lot of other sea snakes. We, we didn't see any different probability in being bitten if whether you had this or not, but um, there's definitely more. We can definitely dig into that more. Um, are they diurnal? Some are. Some aren't. So, yeah, there's a um, big range of... So some are... Um, so the one that, that has the light sense is day active generally, but it does rest during the day as well. So they, they sort of... I don't know when they sleep. That's the question I have. It's it's, yeah, it's strange what you're saying. Like, it was it uh, in the daytime they tuck their tail away, but at night, yeah, it's so just that was out. The, that's right. Like, why would they leave it out at night? Maybe they don't know because there's no low, low light. Yeah, maybe. I, yeah, yeah, that's that's maybe the idea. Not. Maybe yeah, there's no, a, right, a reason. Yeah. I'm low thinking th- if that was a a, a curdle lord type thing at that point, like, like I don't know. Ah. Yeah, they don't tend to do that though. Yeah. No, they don't. Um, uh, 
I think it might be, so if you think of a land snake, um, when they're feeling threatened, they coil and then their head's right next to their tail and they can defend themselves. You can't really coil underwater. No. So um, they're not really aware of where their tail is and then they're not feeling anything. Yeah, there's nothing sort of butting up against it. Um, so it might just be an extra sense. It, it's just very mysterious though. And a lot more needs to be done on it. And maybe the more we look, the more we'll find it in, in other species. It's probably just so different to what we're used to as humans, as mammals sensing that we're not really attuned to it yet. How do you tell if a snake's sleeping? Ah. Because they don't close their eyes, do they? That's correct. (laughs) I went... Snoring? I'm wondering if you could use the tail light sense as a way to test when they're sleeping because to to test this, I brought snakes back to Adelaide, kept them at the university, and... um, Part of my requirements to set up the test was like, well, I can't shine the light on them when they're already moving, right? So they have to be resting or, or inactive for a set number of minutes. That was my criteria. So off, more often than not, I would be like, oh, my most successful trials would happen when they're sleeping, quote unquote. But it's actually really hard to prove an animal sleeping, especially if they don't have eyelids. Um, so that's not being tested. And I wonder, if, could you test that with the light sensing? So um, there, I went to a conference on neurobiology and it was mind-blowing. Um, but there's a whole there's a whole field of um, biologists looking at which animals sleep and devising really clever experiments to see um, to test that. So they've even discovered that jellyfish can sleep. They do sleep. So um, they oh, what do they do? They they test it during the day and at night, and then they give it like a, a shock. They kind of oh gosh, I'm going to mess this up. But there was a jellyfish in a cage. And when it would go inactive, it would just rest at the bottom of the cage. So what they do is they just move the cage slightly under to give it a, a jolt and measure its reaction time. So if you move the, if you move the floor from under yourself, you're going to get woken up, right? So it does that, and the jellyfish goes, oh, okay, and then moves around and is a bit delayed in its movement. And then you wait a few minutes and do it again to the jellyfish, and it reacts much quicker. So that's how they're inferring this animal sleeping because it's reaction times going down. So once you're awake, you're really quickly reacting to things, right? So I wonder if you could do that with this. Does that make sense? I don't yeah, know. I'm yeah, not a sleep yeah, biologist, yeah. but when, uh, when it's fascinating. Were, when you had your sea snakes mm. in a captive sort of environment and you were trying, did you, did you ever get them to swim at night, shine a torch on the mm-hmm. towel and see if they put Yeah, so I did different times of day just because I wasn't sure what to expect, whether that would be a factor or not. And it turns out it doesn't really matter what time of day they tend to react. But I measured their reaction times and there was a lot of variability in that. So some of them would react within a, um, less than a second, like maybe um, a quarter of a second. But other times they would take them three seconds to react to it. Mm. So there is variability in that, but I didn't explicitly test it. I was just trying to control for it. So I just tested over different times a day. But just my like, you know, you hang, up, hang, up, <laughs> hang out with these animals enough, you start to sense things. But yeah, there was, a, there was one animal that could never, never stop moving during the day. I just couldn't get it. I couldn't do the experiment on it because it wouldn't meet my criteria. But then I wake up at 4 a.m. and it would be still. And that's when I would do it. Um, but so only a few, few of them would actually sleep at night and some didn't. You know, there was a lot of variability. And we're kind of figuring out what their daily activity patterns are from bycatch data, actually. Like when they're catching certain animals, because a lot of um, cat trawlers are out at night um, in Shark Bay and stuff. So you'll get different proportion of species depending on what time of day it is. So we're kind of inferring from that. Um, what they're doing because <laughs> so, it's really hard to observe sea snakes in the wild really yeah so they spend a percentage of their time 
swimming, hunting, mm. snaking, and then <laughs> snaking. <laughs> nice verb. Snaking. Yeah. I like that. And then they'd be for a period of their time in a burrow or on a crevice or yeah. something along those lines. Yeah, and I think it's. I don't think it's like us, you know, you know, where we're, we're moving around all day and then we sleep at night. I think the, a lot of species are resting at times during the day and at night. So I think they go through these sort of mini cycles. But again, we need to test it. We um, couldn't do it in the wild. So we'd, we'd catch them and put them in um, what's called a behaviour arena. So just a rounded sort of tub that I got from Bunnings, actually. So it was a pond. Um, like for Bunnings? <laughs> yeah, so Sponsor. Sponsor of the week. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's from Bunnings. And um, we filled up with water. And so we tried a few different preliminary tests to see what would kind of work. And the first thing we thought, like, let's recreate its natural habitat, put a rock in there, great. Did that a few times. And I would sort of leave it in pretty low light, pretty much darkness, but not, not full darkness. And when I'd come in to, to do the trial, I'd, I'd look at the snake and... Everything would be fine except its tail would be under the rock. And that happened quite a lot. So I kept making the rock smaller and smaller so I could keep excluding it from, because it likes hiding under this rock. And, um, you know, we'd give it, like, you know, it's only for the tests it would be in this arena. Usually it would have all its habitat and stuff. So in the, t- in the arena, I kept making this little bit of rock smaller and smaller and eventually it would just be sticking its tail in the rock. So I couldn't do the experiment. So after we took the rock out and... Um, I ended up using torchlight to just recreate the original experiments and we measured the wavelengths to see what spectrum it was. <laughs> um, oh, green tree frog. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, and we thought about using some high-tech lasers and physics, but in the end we just went with very simple, let's just recreate what's been done. Um, what would be really good is if we could separate out, there are machines that can do this, you can sort of separate out, well, you could use a prism, you could separate out different colours, you could also separate different um, frequencies of light so you could see where exactly are the sea snakes sensitive to because if I put a really low light on them they wouldn't really move it would have to be I know it had to be a bright light because then once we get that information we could we could start making inferences about well can it sense moonlight can it what times of day is it most sensitive and we're not there yet so yeah there's a lot more to be done on that one um so their activity would probably be when their prey is more active. You'd imagine that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that it, makes sense. Like most of our marsupials are nocturnal, mm. but the, the numbat, he comes out during the day because he eats termites and they're active during yeah. the day. So he's unusual because he comes out during the day. So yeah. Thinking, I don't know anything about fish, but so there are fish that come mm. out during the day, so the sea snakes might hunt during the day mm. if they eat a particular. But I guess... Some of them probably eat their prey while their prey's asleep, like you said, with that skinny-headed one. He's yeah. He's his head down into the... Yeah, I'm not sure. It's, it's a good question. We kind of we kind of lack some of the most basic biology, uh, information about the basic biology of these animals like that. So I don't think that's been explicitly tested, um, but that would make sense. And also I would say I'm, oh, I just don't know enough about fish biology. So that's why it's so great because you get to collaborate with people who actually know more than you and then you can kind of fill in the gaps and ask them the questions <laughs> yeah <they> can... <laughs> that's it but i will there's a little tidbit we caught some snakes up in broom which are ah so now i'm going to backtrack on my definition of sea snakes but there are a couple sea snakes that do kind of come on land so they're in intertidal habitats and they when the tide goes out you'll see these sea snakes usually swimming in the ocean or sort of estuaries come up and they are crawling through all the mud looking for prey in sort of the burrows that are already formed in the mud, um, on the mud, in mangroves and stuff like that. 
So um, they are cool because <laughs> we caught one of them and it regurged um, this eel and we had no idea what it was. So we took a photo, sent it to the museum and um, sure enough, it's this extremely rare eel, which I forgot the name of because I'm not a fish biologist, but it's one that's like only a couple records ever because it's so hard to get. But that's actually a really interesting way of discovering new species is like, okay, something's eaten it. And so now we can, so that was a new um, range um, distribution for that species. That's like the rediscovery of the um, pygmy blue tongue, isn't it? I found inside oh, a did dead, they? dead snake. Yeah, dead yeah. snake on the, on the road, yeah. yeah. Did you hear about the dinner snake? No. So that was one that came out recently. There was a specimen that collected a snake from Mexico in like the 70s or something and accessioned it at the museum scanned it and there was another snake inside of it that it had eaten and they didn't know what it was but they were like well we'll just go catch it one day it was on the, a mountaintop in mexico somewhere and then decades passed and never caught it so they decided to describe it and yeah it was a completely new snake um new species and so they named it some latin for dinner or something i can't remember what it was yeah. yeah so you have to get quite clever about how to find information without directly seeing it as a biologist you know like studying scat and stuff like that you know you have to be quite yeah. Yeah, we've often talked about if people that study big cats, mm. you're not out there watching big no, cats, no, no. you're looking at, at best tracks and yep. photo images if you're lucky. Yeah, something that's been quite, yeah, that's why collaborating with fisheries and things like that, you know, and, and depart, people who are more often to see sea snakes, that's why it's really useful. Um, but something that's been quite great for ocean habitats is um, these remote underwater vehicles. Um, so it's where like oil and gas use them as well, but they're now being used for surveys where you can put these cameras down to quite quite um, low depths to survey what's going on. So, And they've got this other one where they, they bait a camera with fish or whatever and see what comes to it. It's called a bruv, baited remote underwater vehicle or something. And so that's been a really interesting way of like um, surveying sea snakes as well, as well as sharks and lots of things on the Great Barrier Reef. So It's a great idea. Yeah. It's a bit like putting bacon on a tree and putting up a camera. See what comes, yeah. And quails yeah. and devils. And, yeah. Um, do you think there's other species out there that are yet to be described? Absolutely. No, no question. No question. Because we're discovering them all the time. So someone in my lab, he's writing up, he's discovered a new species for his honours. So, and that's just from, um, partly from just surveying undersurveyed habitats. So we're finding more in Western Australia that we didn't know about. Um, but also from reassessing the genetic, like getting more genetic data. And what's actually happening is, we see something that looked quite, you know, just didn't look unremarkable, but looked like just any other species. And then we test the DNA and turns out, actually, no, it's really quite divergent. And then we start looking at its skeleton and other markers and we go, no, actually, it's, this is a very different thing. And we redescribe, we describe a new species that way. So that's happened a few times. So um, there's um, an estuary sea snake up in the Gulf of Carpentaria that was described only a few years ago, um, Donald Eye, um, and a new egg-eating species. So I talked about the turtle-headed. There was another turtle, um, similar species in that it had reduced venom and eats only fish eggs. So that's a mosaic sea snake. And there's another, as a, I won't reveal my colleague's new species, but that will be coming out very soon as well. Um, and he's, he's just a... Guess. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be here a long time. But he's a whiz and uh, he, he's just got an eye for specimens. So if you go into a museum... Um, you'll see things that have been collected decades ago and he saw we've seen, there's been one in a jar for ages and he's like what's that and then he's like I think I've actually seen that somewhere else and it's sort of drawing things together and you actually bring it out of the jar no one's looked at it for decades and actually this is really new and we 
we don't know anything about it, but it's definitely a new species. So that's happening as well. Like things, data we already have is, is being reanalyzed all the time. Um, <laughs> plastics in the ocean is a huge issue. Is mm. that having an impact at all on the snakes? We don't know. Hasn't been tested, but it's funny you mentioned that because um, I was talking about the yellow belly sea snake on Twitter and that's that one that goes across all the oceans. And um, another scientist on Twitter, she just recently wrote an article about plastic cleanups, um, which they want, I don't know the details, but they're, they're wanting to pull ocean um, plastic out of the ocean. And she had an interesting point. There's these, these habitats out there which are on these currents. And they kind of form, um, they're kind of these transient habitats that could be affected by plastic cleanup. Which I'd never even thought of, but certainly sea snakes would be affected by that too if, if that happens. Are you talking about those big, massive sort of yeah, net, things that go thing out? Or, and isn't there one happening the at the moment that's meant to be like the it's, biggest ocean yeah. cleanup? Yes, ever. it's the same one. Yeah. Mm. So, look, I'd, I haven't actually, I've got the data on the issue. I've just been looking at it on Twitter. So, and there, so anyway, so she, she. Um, hadn't considered sea snakes but potentially they could be affected by that but in terms of plastics um god it's such a good question we don't know i'm sure they could be I more mean. than likely yeah i'm sure mm. be ingesting it in some in- ingesting would be what i think too yeah mm. wow. yeah mm. wow so many quick we- can we get you back on um <laughs> sure in another year or so absolutely yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like say. you've got about 20 years of work yeah i know yeah. <laughs> it's a bit overwhelming sometimes <laughs> yeah. i kind of like rein it in wow. rein it in yeah, sure. Absolutely amazing. Thank yeah, what, what do you think you might do next? You're just about to hand up this paper. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. coming out this week. It's really exciting. I want to. S- <sighs> There's so much that interests me, but I do think the sensory aspect is really interesting. Um, I've, I'm gonna. I don't want to keep studying sea snakes, but I have um, just accepted a postdoc position in the US, which is on coral snakes, which will be really cool which is really exotic for me, a different type of snake. But um, that's looking at um, their evolution. So anything that anything that's doing something weird, evolutionary speaking, like anything that's kind of teaches us more about how evolution works, I think I'll be there. So I'm not going to limit myself to snakes, but there's still a lot more to do. And sensory biology is awesome. I don't know. I'm going to do it all. <laughs> that's, that's the question. <laughs> that was fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap this up? Oh, um. I don't think so. I think it's just great that um, people are into reptiles or into things that, you know, that might scare them or might be a bit fearful. I think the more we can talk about those animals and the the better, the better we can sort of um, connect with our wildlife. It's not just pandas and koalas, is it? Well, yeah, I I think I didn't even know about sea snakes, but then they're they're quite unique here in Australia, but no one really knows much about them and um, neither did I. So it makes sense. But I think I want to raise the profile a bit absolutely intrigued me so much about them i don't mm. know nothing about them until now and yeah want to know more great yeah absolutely yeah um jenna thank you so much for coming thank on you. no worries really enjoyed that and guys thank you for listening